Change is coming. This is Spirit, Soul, Body, week five. Change is com- coming. And last week, uh, the, this is kind of a two-part message in some ways. Last week, I gave a message on the soul uh, saying brokenness is necessary. Every week, I, you know, I, wrote, I write ser- a series. I'm not getting my words out. Let's start over. I write sermons a couple weeks in advance, particularly the week of, do a lot of work. And so last week, I did a sermon on the soul that kind of middle place between the spirit and our body. Our soul is where our mind, will, and emotions live. And I and gave a message called brokenness is necessary. But I didn't want to just preach it. I wanted you to really experience it. And I was like, I want to break something. I want to like break something in worship. Because I told the story of the woman who breaks the jar and anoints Jesus' feet. And, and so I had it right here. I had it like ready to go last week. And I had a basket and there was a big stone for my garden. And, and Two jars, one for the 9 and 10.30, full of water with uh, frankincense oil. It was going to be awesome. And I was going to break the jar, and it was going to be this, like, oh, yeah, brokenness is necessary. What happened? Well, uh, we ran out of time, and I kind of lost my nerve a little bit. It's like there's always kind of a dynamic process, but like, wow, it's going to be kind of dramatic, and, you know, it could be dangerous, you know, glass flying around the sanctuary and whatever. And so I just, you know, didn't happen. And I driving away last week, I was like, maybe I should have done the brokenness thing. I don't get two blocks. I tap my brakes. The, the, the basket next to me hits the front of my car. Both jars, 9 and 1045. The water, the frankincense, the stone, just not a little broken, like demolished, like all over inside my car. I'm like, I get it, Lord. Brokenness is necessary now inside my own vehicle. And God's like, you should have just done the thing in service. But we talked about the soul. And the soul, we said, needs to be broken. Because we have this image, and there's no perfect image. People are like, well, you know, we're not divided parts. We're really just one identity, our inside and our outside. And we've used circles, we've used triangles. None of the imagery is all that great. But in this series, we're getting at this tension that uh, it is our bodies in touch with the natural physical world where the spirit longs to break through, where the spirit, where our spirit connects. We're so to be called full of the word of God and revelation that the spirit would be in us and on us and through us, that, that we would experience the manifestation of God in our actual bodies, that it would move from just the stuff we think about to what, how, how we actually live and changes our relationships and our spending and our sexuality, that we would be different because the Spirit of God is in us. But it has to flow through our souls, that we have these souls, these strong souls, which our mind, our will, our emotions, which because of sin are distorted. And so we long to have the fruit of the Spirit lived out in our body. But for many of us, we experience blockages And so this series is about understanding more how God's spirit longs to reside in and through our bodies. Today, we're talking that change is coming. It's really important to build off last week that brokenness is necessary. Our souls are to be broken in worship of God in order to be filled with the spirit. We talk a lot in the world about wholeness and that somehow if I can just have enough money and enough relationships and you know, no stress, that I might experience this kind of mythical place in culture we call wholeness. But as Christ followers, we talk more wholeness and fullness are synonyms, but I kind of prefer fullness, that we long to be so full of God's spirit in our bodies that we would experience the, the fruit of the spirit that it would be lived through us, that, that our lives would be a living testimony of the power of God, 
not disembodied from our bodies, but right in the middle of our own stories, that this would be what fullness looks like. So next week, I'll be preaching a message on our bodies, and we'll talk about Sabbath rest. We'll talk about the importance of having an embodied faith. All of that is, is predicated on doing some soul work. And, and what we're going to happen today, what's going to happen in the story of Judah and Genesis, is we're going to learn this really powerful thing, be reminded of this powerful thing, that God chooses to accomplish his work in the world through, uh, to bring his glory and goodness and holiness to bear through deeply flawed people who are willing to confess sin and who display curiosity and turn to God for transformation. If we want fullness, it's right in the midst of our actual identity. And when we display these markers of confession and curiosity and ask God to transform us, that he can do something more powerful through us than we can ever do on our own. And it's actually pretty remarkable that the story of Judah becomes, you know, a marker in the line of Christ. Look at that. We sang it this morning. Our God is the lion, the lion of Judah. Why why do we sing that? We're going to talk about that today. That's pretty, pretty incredible. Judah, the fourth born of Jacob. Judah, remember, Jacob had 12 sons and stories given in Genesis. Judah is the perfect case study for spirit, soul, body. Because he has the full gift set in the line of Jacob, and yet their flesh is strong. His will is strong, and he does a lot of horrible things. But ultimately, through confession and submission, God establishes Judah as a leader over Israel. And so this is where we're going to point to today, that our identity will be used for God's purposes when we turn with confession and curiosity, hungry for more transformation. So it's all about the grace of God for us, his people. So let's look at this first point in our outline, the broken things need fixed. Broken things need fixed. Jacob's son, Jacob has a broken family system. And even Judah's name points to the marker in which though he's gonna fail miserably in his pursuit towards righteousness, God will establish his story in order to bring glory in the world. Jacob has a really twisted family story. If you feel like, man, I I have a lot of brokenness in my family, um, good news, the Bible is written with average families in mind because there's so much brokenness, particularly in Jacob's story. Remember where he stole the birthright from his brother Esau, and and it's not until he wrestles with the angel that he kind of deals with some of his own brokenness. He has 12 sons. Most of the sons given by other wives, their name kind of is a marker of some of what their mom was hungry for. So Reuben, the firstborn, his name literally means because the Lord has seen my affliction. Simeon, because the Lord has heard that I'm unloved. Levi, that my husband will become attached to me. But Judah, name means I will praise the Lord. Leah, his mom, named him, I will praise the Lord. That's what Judah means. Dan means God has vindicated me. Nephtali, I prevailed over my sister. Uh, Gad, how fortunate I am. Asher, how happy am I. Issachar, God has given me my wages. Dinah, the one daughter of Jacob, she was judged and vindicated. Her name means that. Zebulun, now my husband will dwell with me. Joseph, God has taken away my reproach. But there's something in Judah's name that we're supposed to learn from. His name literally means, I will praise, or the Lord will be praised. But what's incredible about Judah, if you look at his life, and in the Old Testament, it was all about righteousness, his life was anything but praiseworthy. He displays all the markers of brokenness that we experience thousands of years later, Remember in the story of Genesis where their little brother Joseph was favored with the, with the special coat, 
He went out, his dad sent him, Jacob sent him out to check on his brothers, and they said, let's kill him, and they threw him into a well. It was Judah, the fourthborn, Judah, who said, no, let's sell him. Let's make money on our brokenness. And though Exodus says that the average slave was to be sold for 30 shekels of silver, they sold their little brother for 20 shekels of silver. That was Judah's idea. Man, they came home, and Jacob was so distraught, it says, the text says that he mourned for many days. Like, just imagine that kind of lie, how hard they had to work to protect that lie, Jacob and his brothers. Their father is falling apart in grief. In, in, in that culture, he would have sat in his grief, sat in ashes for many, many days, and they had to work so hard to protect that lie. They became stuck in a broken system. And I won't ask for a show of hands, but how often do we get caught in lies that start to be self-determining factors in our relationships? Or caught in places of un, unhealth, in our marriage, or in our work, or in our, in our bodies, and we're just trying to cope and self-medicate, but we somehow lose for the purposes of which we were made. So Judah, he's, he's kind of stuck in this lie. The text says he marries a Canaanite woman. That's, that's significant. He's marrying outside of his, of his bloodline, outside of his tribe, which was not in God's best interest, and he has three sons, Two of them die. You can read it in Genesis. He's a man well acquainted with grief. His own wife dies. And then how it worked in, in this day and age was the, the daughter-in-law of his firstborn was to be given to his secondborn because if, if a woman did not have children and if she was not protected in a family system, she had nothing Women did not have power. They did not have rights. And it was the worst kind of discrimination and bias. And so this woman, Tamar, was, was to be cared for by the second son and to be brought in and a family established. He, he didn't do it. The text kind of tells you how he didn't do it. It's kind of, ah, oh, yuck. It says that Judah's firstborn was a sinner and he died. God killed him. The secondborn didn't do what God wanted and God killed him too. Broken things perpetuate, especially in family systems, until someone says, enough. I'm tired of, of just the, the, the onslaught of the family system lies. There's got to be some truth. There's got to be some grace. There's got to be some change. And then the story picks up from Genesis 38, which I read, where Tamar was meant to be given to the thirdborn. Judah had promised her that, but Judah lies because his dad had lies. We've said it before. What's not healed is handed down in your family systems. If you've been handed something in your family system, you're like, man, that didn't feel right. You have to work to eradicate that with God's grace and mercy. Because what's not healed is handed down. Jacob was a liar, and Judah's a liar. And now Tamar was meant to be protected by the thirdborn, but Judah says no. He sends her into her father's house. He tells her to put on widow's clothes. He says, when the time comes, I'll take care of you. I'll make sure that you're married to my thirdborn. But he lies. And so Tamar does the only thing that she can do. She goes out by the road and she veils herself. She veils herself and she changes from widow's clothing to something that looks more like prostitute clothing. Again, Tamar's a victim in the story. No rights, 
no wealth, no power. She's just trying to survive. And the text says that she veils herself to observe what Judah is doing. Judah, when he's recovered from grief, wink, wink, nod, nod. Some of probably why he just got off base with this is because he's not done covering up from grief. And when we're hurting, we tend to hurt others. And when we're hurting, we tend to go seeking in wayward paths for something that will fill us up. And so Judah enters into an unhealthy relationship with this veiled woman. This whole story is about veils and about authority and about power and about brokenness and about identity. I want to pick up the story in Genesis 38, 20, 20, 23. Like we got all the backstory. This woman, Tamar, goes out and, and Judah offers her his ring and cords and a staff, like his most precious things, his markers of his identity, his markers of his authority. He's so, you know, covered up with grief. He gives her anything that she wants as a, as a symbol. And, and then look what happens in Genesis 38, 23. Meanwhile, Judah now sends the young goat to his friend, the Dulamite, in order to get his pledge back from the woman, his ring, his cord, his staff. But he didn't find Tamar by the side of the road. He thought she was just a prostitute. Turns out he had slept with his daughter-in-law. He asked the men who lived there, where is the prostitute who was beside the road in A.M.? There haven't been any shrine prostitute here. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, there hasn't been anyone like that. And then Judah said, let her keep what she has or we will become a laughingstock. We'll pause right there. We will become a laughingstock. See, the problem for many of us when we hunger for broken things to get fixed is we have our own pride and our own self-protection measures in place. We don't like to deal with our own brokenness because for many of us, if we're honest, we're worried about becoming a laughingstock. You think about stockyards and stocks in the day being used for punishment. And when you, when you sinned against God or others, you would be put in stocks and people would walk by and laugh at the people suffering judgment. Well, we've learned from that, from humanity. And so many of us are pretty good at saying, I want to kind of cover up my brokenness and my humanity for fear I'll be laughed at. It's not easy to face your brokenness. Judah only does it in here because he kind of has to. He's called out. And as I was researching this week and researching about laughingstock, what was interesting is, is my Google search uh, brought up the, the Houston Astros. I'm a bit of a baseball fan, so I was like, huh, curious. The Houston Astros from 2011, 12, and 13 lost over 330 baseball games. Losing of an almost record way. They were a laughing stock in Major League Baseball. Interesting. Because any modern fans of baseball remember two things. One, in 2017, the Houston Astros went from laughing stock to champions of Major League Baseball. But what did we learn in the last couple months? The way in which the Astros achieved prominence from laughing stock to champions was cheating. Now you can Google it. It's actually just mind-blowing. But the Houston Astros in 2017 and parts of 2018 set up a pretty elaborate form of cheating where they used at home a center field camera to, to record the, the, the signals of the catcher of the visiting team to the pitcher. 
So why this is important, because in Major League Baseball, where a pitch is coming to you at 100 miles an hour, you have just microseconds to decide, is it a fastball or is it a breaking ball where you're meant to swing and miss? We have some baseball fans in the room. But what the Houston Astros did is they created this fairly simple but very elaborate form of cheating where they would be monitoring in the dugout that, oh, it's a breaking ball. They could see it because they were connected to these cameras in center field. And so they would bang on a garbage can or they would whistle. Basically, the batter in the batting box would hear just a moment, oh, don't hit this one. Oh, don't hit this one. No sound, boom, swing for it. Doesn't guarantee success, but it definitely stacks the odds in your favor. So much so that in 2017, the Houston Astros, in their home stadium, they won every game. That's why they won the championship. It's surprising to me that that in my Google search, Laughingstock kind of brought up their epic failure, and then I started to reflect, isn't it interesting that from Laughingstock to champions by cheating... Oh, more than moralize about the failure of Major League Baseball, I'd rather talk about our own stories, which are way more convicting, because it's when we're forced to face our own brokenness. It's, it's when we face our own gaps in our relationships. It's when we, we recognize ways that we're not discipling our children, the ways of the Lord, the, the way in which we might have wanted to. It's, it's ways in which we look at our vocation becoming an idol in our life. It's ways in which our own bodies struggle to live out the spirit of God. Like when our own fatigue or busyness becomes an idol in our lives, like that's actually way more convicting than the Astros. And what this text today says that broken things need, need to be broken and change is coming, but broken things need to be healed. And how that happens is when we are unmasked, when we are unveiled, when we stop running and blaming and, and trying to say, well, it's someone else's fault when we deal with our own hurt our own pain, our own shame, and we turn to Christ because Christ came to set us free from the masks that we wear, from the veils that we hide behind. I used to teach American literature in Los Angeles. I taught a couple different groups of kids for several years post-college. It was really uh, a really life-giving time of my own, my own vocational journey. And I had some of the lowest performing kids in the school that we were just trying to get them past the high school, California high school exit exam. And then I had some of the highest performing kids in class that were juniors and seniors studying upper level American literature in order to go into the UC system. And I'll tell you, it was actually the high-performing kids that were a lot more work. Our teachers know this because the anxiety about their grades and the hyper-performance of of every single thing, not not trying to wrestle with their identity like my kids over here, like, do I even care about high school at all? There was a a simplicity of teaching these kids. The higher-performing kids were caught up, I'm afraid, many of them with masks, And near the end of the spring, after studying American literature, right in the midst of college applications and all these fears and fatigues, we came to a text, The Catcher in the Rye, and we would study masks. 
To do it, we would study uh, an African-American poet by the name Paul Lawrence Dunbar, and he wrote this poem, We Wear the Mask. And at the end of the poem, Dunbar, kind of seeking for racial justice in a post-Civil War America, talking about the veil that people of color have to exist behind to just even survive, he says, We smile, but, O great Christ, our cries to thee from tortured souls arise. We sing, but the clay is vile beneath our feet and long the mile, but let the world dream otherwise. We wear the mask. And Dunbar is naming as a person of color two realities. One, that the, the veil of living in a racialized America that we still live in today, the challenge of living there, and then also this, you know, this kind of power that as a victim, I'm not going to let the world define me. But I would take my students through this activity as we read The Catcher in the Rye where we would make masks on this side what the world sees when they look at you, places of strength, athleticism, scholastic endeavors. But then we would flip the mask inside out and they would write what nobody sees but you wish that they'd see. Loneliness, despair, suicide, sexual brokenness. It's our story. Christ came to remove the mask that we would with unveiled and unmasked faces say, I want a new story. God, I know there's broken things in my life, in my history. I'm more like Judah than I long to admit. I've had places where I've been the victim like Tamar, but God, would you, would you remake me? Would you renew me? Would you restore me? And that leads us into the second place that we become, I think, kind of a key for us as we look at transformation. Curiosity and confession stimulate healing. Curiosity and confession stimulate healing. To this, go back to Genesis 38 if you brought your Bibles, verse 24 through 26. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, she's guilty of prostitution. In Levitical law, she, was, she would be stoned. And so as a result, she's pregnant. Judah's irate because it's easier to judge other people's behavior than look at our own. He says, bring her out and have her burned to death. That was the law. Judah was actually abiding by the law here. He's just saying, she needs to die for her sin. And as she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. She's so wise and cunning as this woman had no power. She had to fight for every breath that she took, but she's able here, even as they're wait, you know, trying to rip her out of her home, she's able to send these things to her father-in-law and say, recognize these? And Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I since, that's, I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shayla, and he did not sleep with her again. And much could be said about verse 26, but this piece, she is more righteous than I, man, that, that's helpful for us. He confesses his sin. He says to the ruling people in her town, she, the prostitute you're ready to kill by Levitical law, she has the markers of righteousness more than me, the son, the, you know, one of the favored sons of Jacob. He stands before the rest of his tribe and says, I've been living a lie. That's on me. Spare her life. This is my story too. We don't get the details, but I just like, man, I just can't, I want to know more. What was that like for him? He could have actually let her probably be killed. But Judah starts this turnaround here. He starts to deal with his brokenness. He starts to say, I can't hide anymore. 
And see, the thing about Judah, what's helpful for us is this is our human nature. When, when kind of made to face our sin, we either run and hide, aka Genesis 3, we cover, cover ourselves up, or we blame others. Hey, Adam, why did you take the apple and eat? What does he say? It was her. It was her. Men in the room, we... We've been blaming women for a lot of stuff for a long time. It was her. Shame and blame. Two of the absolute killers towards transformation. But confession is required. We would see this again in David's story where Nathan, after David had committed adultery, Nathan the priest came and gave him this allegory of a man who had committed sin and David was you know, righteous in his actions and struggled in his interior life like so many of us. And, and 2 Samuel 12 said, you know, Nathan the priest says, David's like, oh, the, whoever did this wrong is to be punished. And Nathan says, you are that man. You're that man. And then we have a choice, shame and blame or confession. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. This is the thing, you guys, that when we fail, because we will, we're to live into the words of James 5, 16. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that your sins may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And so accountability happens like this. And this is where the grace can begin to really flow into our lives, not earning anything, but saying, I'm tired of the shame. I'm tired of the blame. I'm going to deal with my own junk. First John 1, 9 promises, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. He'll forgive us our sins and he'll purify us from all righteousness. So man, when you're, when you're faced in your Judah moments with places of brokenness, confess your sin. But many of the rest of us in this room are like, ah, I'm not sitting with this unresolved sin that I'm struggling to confess. There's a second piece that comes out of the story about curiosity. And we learn this from Tamar. When in pain, be curious. Make it very clear. Tamar was a victim. She was spurned. She was a widow. Imagine delivering twins as she would as a single mom. But freedom from this kind of pain needs not more judgment. It needs more grace. It needs freedom. And so I want to encourage you in the room that are, that are just sitting on a great pain in your life. I'd encourage your prayer this week, instead of, God, why me? I want to encourage you to be curious. God, where are you in this? God, how do you want to shape me in this? God, how do you want to reveal your glory even in these worst of days? And when we are curious in our pain We're kind of ending the cycle of shame and blame. And we're also, for many of us, when we've been taken advantage of by somebody else, we're saying, it wasn't okay. God didn't do this to me, but we're curious. And Paul says that God can use all things for his glory. God doesn't bring pain into our lives in order to test us or to break us. But when we're curious in our pain, we believe that God can take our pain in order to bring more beauty, more beauty. We brought up this example last week of the subterranean leadership that we focus, this is Pastor Richard's, one of his core projects, that we focus on this above ground living where we want more influence and different tactics and strategy that all comes from the place of revelation below ground and intimacy, which is born from humility that ultimately comes from a place of brokenness. And so when we're curious, we say, God, I want to be intimate with you, where you reveal how every single thing I'm going through can reveal more of your spirit in my life. And that's what it's about. More and more and more of God's spirit into our bodies, through our souls.
Change is coming, and it can be beautiful. I, I was a salmon fishing guide for years. We would take people out fishing. Don't worry, it's not a fishing story. But one of the things we did was we would tour through the Broughton Archipelago. This is a series of islands up in kind of halfway between Seattle and Alaska. And, and many of these little islands were places where indigenous people lived for thousands of years. And they have these, these trees, these cedar trees. And these cedar trees on these little islands have been stripped of bark for hundreds of years for ceremonial masks and totems and different things for, for their culture to, to connect with, with spirit. But now tour guides, this is an indigenous leader from up in the north BC coast, they take people and show these trees. Before, people were like, these are the most worthless trees because they've been scarred. They've turned out to be the tribe's most profitable trees. When we take the things in our life that are scarred and broken and say, Lord Jesus, teach me to confess and be curious that my pain and my brokenness would be a, bring glory to you, then God says, my grace can redeem all things. I can make beautiful things from the places that you feel are scarred and worthless. Curiosity and confession will stimulate healing in order that, and it's all for this, that Christ is revealed in our transformation that Christ would be revealed in our transformation. I've been reading this wonderful book that my spiritual director gifted me. It's called The Gift of Being Yourself. If you're wrestling with your identity in Christ, it's a book by David Benner. I highly, highly recommend. And Benner writes this, the goal of the spiritual journey is the transformation of self. And this requires knowing both ourself and God. The Holy Spirit calls us home to our place and identity in God. Being most deeply your unique self is something God desires because your true self is grounded in Christ. God created you in uniqueness and seeks to restore you to that uniqueness in Christ. Finding and living out your true self is fulfilling your destiny. And this was Judah's story. I mean, we don't have time to go into the whole thing. You can read in Genesis, but he went from this sign of of brokenness with Tamar to as the sons of Jacob go to Israel and face their brother, also veiled Joseph, it's Judah, the fourthborn, who speaks on behalf of the brothers. It's Judah who says, we have blown it and we're hungry because it's hunger that drives transformation. Let's be honest, most of us don't go seeking hungry places. We don't go seeking soul work and transformation and places we failed God. But when we're hungry, we can, we can lean in and be obedient. And near the end of that Genesis story where the brothers are are with Joseph and Joseph says, leave Benjamin, the youngest, you go get your dad and bring him down here. Joseph is is longing to see his father again. But Judah is the one that says, no, take me. Man, that's transformation. Remember, he sold Joseph into slavery. And now later in the story, in Egypt, he's offering his own life. And the text says there, that's when Joseph takes the veil off. It's incredible. That's when Joseph said, enough. He sends the, uh, the Egyptians out of the room and he brings his family around him. Because when we live unveiled, when we live unflinching, when we deal with our brokenness, when we take our pain and move into places of confession and curiosity, transformation happens. Grace flows. God can flow into our body, and it's incredible. It's incredible. 
John 8, 12, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Ephesians 5, you were formerly darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Stop walking in places where your brokenness is being perpetuated. Lean in by the grace of God to be changed for his glory. Luke 8, nothing is hidden that will not become evident, nor anything secret that will be not known and come to light. Jesus is just promising, you got to deal with this stuff. And then Ephesians five. Everything exposed by light becomes visible, and everything that's illuminated becomes a light. This is mind-blowing. When we deal with our brokenness, we say, I'm hungry for the change that's coming. The stuff that we, we confess to the Lord, and we're curious and take our pain and bring it as an offering, it in itself becomes a light, becomes a marker that God's grace has flowed into us broken people. Benner again from the gift of being yourself says this, what makes this encounter possible is looking at God, looking at us. As we see how deeply loved we are by God in our depths and our complexity and the totality and sinfulness, we dare to allow God more complete access to the dark parts of our soul that most need transformation. And God precedes us on this journey, waiting to meet us in the depths of our self. This is incredible absolutely amazing because one of the things that we're gonna like we sang today like our god is lion lion of judah where does that come from revelation 5 5 in the end one of the elders said to me do not weep see the lion of the tribe of judah the root of david has triumphed he's open to he's able to open the scroll and its seven seals christ is the lion of judah matthew 1 the genealogy of Christ, which when we're in Christ, we're brothers and sisters with Christ himself. This is amazing, Matthew 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah through David, later, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Amazing. This is in Matthew 1. This is the story of our Savior that flowed through this really broken situation where a man used his power to take something that was not his, and a woman suffered, but suffered for God. We don't glorify the sin, but we celebrate the grace. And that this is part of Christ's story to me is unbelievable. Read Matthew 1 devotionally. The women that show up are all markers of God's great grace. Rahab, Tamar, Ruth, etc. Amazing. This is a grace story, friends. A great grace story. So faced with your brokenness, get into confession. And in places of your pain, be curious. God, what are you doing here? And how can you make me more like you? I don't know about you, but this is a story that I need to be reminded of again and again and again. God's great grace for me to change me, that a spirit would break through my soul to be lived out in my body. We'll talk about how to do that more next week. Will you pray with me now? Lord Jesus, thank you so much for these reminders and this good story of how your spirit was able to work through a very broken situation. We thank you for the story of Judah we thank you that she, he was able to face his worst parts, that he, that he helped spare his daughter-in-law's life, and that the line of Christ continued through these twin boys. God, teach us to be like this. 
teach us that this heroic journey that we long to live is not escapism, it's brokenness. That forgiveness flows from a place and posture at the foot of your cross where we confess places where we've missed it and we're hungry for more of your grace in our lives. Lord God, we would ask in the day ahead, in the weeks ahead, that we would be less about shame and blame and more about confession and curiosity. Lord God, that your spirit would break through. And while our heads are bowed right now, friends, we're continuing in prayer. But if you're this day, if you're in this place of either needing some moments of confession with your Lord because you're stuck in an old story, or if you're nursing a great pain and you just want to turn that to curiosity while our heads are bowed, will you just raise your hand as a marker that you want the Spirit to flow freely into your life? Thank you. Yep. Yep. Thank you for your bravery. The story of Tamar is about a brave woman, and for those on the journey, may her bravery be lived out in your story in the week ahead. Oh God, we want to be more and more like you. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Today's Communion Sunday. We're going to do things a little different. You can remain seated. A night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took the body and he broke it and he said, this is for you, my body. And then he lifted up the, the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant for forgiveness of sins. And so I want you to stay seated. I want you to receive communion when you're ready from a posture of hunger, of willingness to engage in this ongoing story. If there's something that you're wanting to confess, or now scripture says that in the New Testament, confess your sins before coming to the altar. Just in, you're not gonna make you sign anything, raise your hands, dance a jig. No, just from the silence of your own place with the Lord, confess whatever it is you need to confess. Or if you're in pain this morning, Bring that curiously to the Lord. God, how can you use this for your glory? And then when your heart is stirred and you're ready, you'll come forward and just put your hands out and our communion servers will put the body into your hand. You'll dip it in the juice. It's gluten-free bread. We have stations on the side and the front. We'll move through the room clockwise fashion. May our communion be a marker that change is coming because it's already come in Christ. We just hunger to live it out more and more and more and more. So still your heart. Confession, curiosity, prayer. When you're, when you're ready, come forward to receive communion. I'll pray over the elements now. Jesus, thank you for the body and the blood, for this bread and juice. God, we pray that as we take communion this morning, we receive the full gift of grace you've given 100% in your son, Jesus Christ. We love you and all God's people said, amen.